Welcome to Living Freely Podcast, where our mission is to provide you with down-to-earth topics on mental wellness and realistic tips for living life more balanced and achieving optimal mental health. Living Freely is brought to you by Norfolk Public Libraries in Virginia and hosted by myself, Rachel Ann Dine, licensed professional counselor and passionate about providing you with strategies and up-to-date information on mental health. Join in weekly for a brand new episode of Living Freely, helping you live well and be well one podcast episode at a time. Welcome back to Living Freely Podcast. I'm so glad that you're here today and I hope that you are just having a great November. It's hard to believe that we are moving on into the middle to second half of November already and I just hope that whether you are, you know, going to be getting together with family this year or you are creating healthy boundaries with family this year or whatever the case could be going on. And even with the seasonal changes, I just hope that this episode really finds you doing well. And just as a quick reminder, please know that previous seasons of Living Freely cover such a range of topics. So I know I just touched on seasonal affective disorder. We have an episode on that. We have an episode even on setting healthy boundaries, understanding what self-love is, in a very practical, down-to-earth way that is digestible because I want you, every time you listen to this episode or any episode of Living Freely, to really get a good understanding of the topic, but also receive some tools and strategies to create some change in your life if you're in the market to create change or engage in some self-awareness exercises, anything of that nature. So definitely check out those previous seasons. And today I am very excited because I'm going to be sharing with you all about the different styles of attachment. Also discussing what exactly attachment theory is, in addition to providing you a resource, which I will link in the show notes, that is actually a relationship questionnaire that you can take. And this is not one of those questionnaires that's taken from, you know, the back of a magazine. I don't know if you're anything like me. Sometimes you would get a magazine and at the very back, there was like a fun quiz that you would take. No, this particular relationship question questionnaire has been researched and studied and is really an interesting way to get a good glimpse into what your specific attachment style is. If you are not familiar with what attachment styles are, then I also think that this episode will be interesting to you because as you will come to learn, attachment styles definitely influence how we interact and behave in our current relationships. A lot of attachment styles are really heavily developed and formed throughout early childhood and can oftentimes be centered on how children and parents interact. So not to place full blame on parental figures, so to speak, but we do know that so much of who we are 
can be developed over the course of childhood, our family of origin, how they handle difficult situations, how they treated you. All of this does absolutely go into a person's level of self-esteem, self-confidence, and as you'll hear about today, the different types of attachment styles. So Kicking this off a little bit, I did find an excellent article from VeryWellMind.com, and the reason why I wanted to bring up attachment styles in particular is because if you find that you have difficulty trusting in others, navigating romantic relationships, or even friendships, then Understanding where you fall in, how secure you are with yourself, how secure you are with other people can really enhance your relationships and can be very helpful. So ultimately, though, generally speaking, in adulthood, attachment styles are used to describe patterns of attachment in romantic relationships. There were two researchers, Bowlesby and Ainsworth, that I will share more about as this episode progresses, but they were really some of the leading psychologists and researchers who kicked off all of the information about attachment styles. So essentially, what is attachment? Attachment is the special emotional component of a relationship that often involves an exchange, so that reciprocity, give and take of comfort, care, and pleasure. The real roots of research on attachment really started all the way back with good old Sigmund Freud, which for almost anyone you know, who is interested in psychology, we've all heard of Freud. You know, he was kind of the father of psychology, if you will. But he really kicked off some of this early research. But as I've already shared, there was another researcher, John Bowlby, who can really be credited with extensive research on the concept of attachment. So I'm pulling a lot of my information today from research that Bowlby did, and you know me, I like to always provide that evidence-based, empirically validated information. And so that's where Bowlby comes in, in his research. And Bowlby really advocated that early experiences in childhood are very important for influencing our development and behavior later on in life. And as I've already shared, our early attachment styles are ultimately established in childhood, believe it or not, through the infant-caregiver relationship. I'm going to also be sharing a couple of actual research studies to back up some of Bowlby's claims because it is so fascinating how even the relationship that you had with your family member as an infant can play into our ability to securely be able to latch onto somebody else or associate with them or allow them to enter into our lives. If you had an insecure attachment with your caregiver or in one of the studies there, they 
studied individuals who had actually been raised in orphanages and they were not necessarily provided secure care on a frequent basis. It was really intermittent because there were so many infants that the caregivers couldn't give that same consistent level of care to each child. They were shown to have struggled as they became older in life. And so I'm definitely simplifying this. I want to try to find that and give you a little bit more information. But ultimately, it just goes to show how important the infant caregiver relationship is, but then especially family of origin. So real quick, some of the characteristics of attachment that Bowlby really believed were kind of the four main ingredients, if you will, of attachment are proximity maintenance, which is the desire to be near the people who we are attached to. So being in close proximity, safe haven, Returning to the attachment figure for comfort and safety in the face of a fear or a threat. Then there was secure base. The attachment figure acts as a base of security from which the child can explore the surrounding environment. So I think about, you know, even a toddler who's trying to gain a sense of independence But they know in the back of their mind that mom or dad or whoever that stable parental figure is, is always going to be there. So maybe they're on the playground and they are pushing themselves to, I don't know, climb up the ladder, go down the big slide, but they know at the bottom of it, there's my parent there to catch me. And so that's really the base of security that parents act as when a child's growing up. Okay, the fourth distinguishing characteristic of attachment is separation distress. This is the anxiety that can occur in the absence of an attachment figure. So if you had a parent or caregiver that was not consistent, then this is almost a sense of anxiety that can arise when there is not the stable figure who is in your life. So all really important aspects of exactly what attachment is. So I know that I shared about Bowlby, but I would be remiss not to mention Mary Ainsworth, who was the the other researcher who did just an immense amount of work in terms of attachment theory and attachment styles. And it was Ainsworth who actually what proposed that there were three major styles of attachment, secure attachment, ambivalent insecure attachment, and avoidant insecure attachment. Then there came, and I won't get too much into the weeds with this, but then there came another group of researchers, Maine and Solomon, who added on a fourth attachment style known as disorganized insecure attachment. So I want to go ahead really quickly and just tap into what what each style of attachment is because I think that some of these concepts will probably make a little bit more sense if you just know exactly what attachment styles are um, specifically. So let me go ahead and just start this off by sharing a little bit more about what secure attachment is. Secure attachment is ultimately what you should be aiming for. 
And secure attachment is most often facilitated when parents or your caregiver was available, sensitive, responsive, or accepting. So in these relationships with secure attachment, parents would let their children go out and about, but were there for them when they came back and provided that sense of security and comfort. Now, this can also be present as somebody gets older. You know, not all of this necessarily has to take place when you are a tiny child or infant. That's where a lot of this is solidified. But I even think about kids who potentially were adopted at a young age and their adoptive family was able to provide that really strong and stable sense of security. Then we know that potentially their attachment style can become more secure. Also, as an adult, there are ways to create a more secure attachment style too. But I won't get too much into that right now because I want to stick to describing these four different attachment styles. So we know that when caregivers were available, sensitive, responsive, gave feedback, were genuinely interested in their kids, and when caregivers or parents were accepting, this definitely encouraged the secure attachment style. So children who develop secure attachment learn how to trust and typically have a pretty intact and healthy sense of self-esteem. In addition to this, when parents demonstrate an interest in their child's life, and you may have felt this if you had parents who exhibited this really secure attachment, when parents, you know, played with their kids, when they really encouraged unique expression or, you know, different hobbies, then Alternately, the child can even learn that it's okay to express negative emotions and also learn how to depend and rely on someone else. So it really creates this dynamic where as adults, the children who grew up with this secure environment are often more so in touch with their feelings and emotions. They are competent and generally have pretty healthy relationships. You know, no relationship is perfect, but like I said, the secure attachment is kind of the holy grail, if you will, of the attachment styles. That's kind of what we should all be shooting for in terms of feeling secure within yourself, and feeling secure and creating healthy, stable relationships with others. So moving into the anxious, insecure attachment. This type of attachment comes about when parents responded to their child's needs intermittently. It was not consistent. Maybe this, I could, you know, imagine this could come if you were the child of an alcoholic or a child of somebody who abused drugs or was in and out of, you know, being incarcerated where when the parent was sober, when the parent was home, they were to some degree able to attend to their child's needs, but it wasn't consistent. There would be a lot of kind of ebb and flow or maybe the caregiver or the parent 
had their own, you know, mental health struggles going on or just were unable to be fully present the majority of the time. So essentially, a level of care and protection is sometimes there, but sometimes not there. So with anxious, insecure attachment, really the child has a difficult time relying on their parents to be there when they really need their parent. And because of this dynamic, sometimes the child will ultimately struggle to develop strong feelings of security from their parent. So as you can see, it's so vital how this dynamic can play out. And if you're listening in and the anxious and secure attachment is already kind of sounding familiar, then you may have difficulty feeling like you can depend on other people in your life. And it may not be any fault of them, so to speak. It could be something that you're dealing with Or you may naturally, on the flip side, gravitate towards friendships or romantic relationships where that person offers you inconsistent or unstable support that's not fully consistent. We always kind of go towards what our familiar is, for better or worse. So getting back into anxious and secure attachment, If a child cannot rely on their parent to be there, especially if the child felt threatened or scared, then it even becomes more difficult for the child to develop a sense of independence and self-efficacy that it's okay to move away from their parent to explore. So if you remember, Bowlby really talked about having that secure base, really having that strong sense of security that no matter what happens, you'll still be accepted from your parent. And in anxious and secure attachment, this is kind of a component that the child misses out on is having that sense of security that They can move away from their parent to explore alternate options. It's okay if something falls through. They can always lean on their parent. Now, even so, as a result, I had to collect my thoughts here for a second because to me, this piece really becomes vital to know about is that because of this dynamic, that anxious, insecure attachment, the child can even start to come across as more demanding and even more clingy, hoping that their sense of urgency, their sense of discomfort will then force the parent to react. Now, This can also play out in romantic relationships as an adult. The adult may become or may seem even more quote unquote clingy or needy and they're hoping that their kind of overt attempts to get the attention of their romantic partner, they're hoping that that will really force their partner to react, but sometimes all it does is repel the person from them even more. But then what does it do to the other person? It causes them to want to try to reach out and become even more demanding. It's kind of this vicious cycle that can happen. So final point, in anxious, insecure attachment, this lack of predictability can sometimes mean that the child 
eventually, and as I was saying, as an adult, this sense of neediness or urgency or I need this to happen or even anger in being distrustful of other people can really come into the forefront. Okay, so the third attachment style is avoidant insecure. So this occurs if a parent has difficulty accepting or responding sensitively to their child's needs. Instead of maybe comforting the child, the parent may minimize the child's feelings or this is where I like to think of the whole, oh, just get over it mentality or other people have it worse than you do. It's not a big deal. That whole kind of way of thinking and trying to comfort comes into play where it can actually be a little bit invalidating or a lot invalidating and it essentially ends up minimizing the person's feelings. Um, In addition to this, in avoidant insecure attachment, sometimes the parent will reject the child's request or demands and doesn't help with difficult tasks. So once again, I think about even an absent parent who if you were in a home life environment where you had to essentially raise yourself, learn to grow up quickly, then it may not be a big surprise if as an adult you kind of notice that you have a bit of the avoidant insecure attachment because if you didn't have a parent there that you could fully depend on, then you almost learn, well, who else can I depend on? Who, who is going to be a, a dependable figure in my life? So as you can see, this would definitely lead to that dynamic happening and in avoidant insecure attachment, sometimes the child learns that their best bet is to just shut down their feelings and fully become self-reliant. And sometimes the children with an avoidant insecure attachment won't even, they'll, they'll just stop turning to their parent when they're feeling upset and they try to minimize showing negative emotions. As you can imagine, this can play out again as an adult. So if you notice that you are hyper self-reliant, you're hyper, I call it the hyper independence, you know, in a lot of ways it can be a result of trauma, you know, kind of a trauma response where you don't want to necessarily open up to anybody else because you've been hurt in the past. And so you just learn to stuff the feelings, let me do it myself. I can't depend on anybody, but it can also be a major form of avoidant insecure attachment. And it's really hard to have a healthy relationship. And this is not blaming you by any means if you have avoidant and secure attachment style, but it is harder to have kind of a healthy reciprocal relationship if you, you know, can shut down those emotions or turn inwards and not be able to ask someone for help. Not to mention, it can make it really hard for you to ask for help in those really difficult times of need or just in general. Okay. So last but not least, let me touch into disorganized insecure attachment. So in about, and this data is taken from healthline.com, they share that about 15% of babies in groups with low psychosocial risk 
and as many as 82% of those in high-risk situations develop disorganized attachment, excuse me, disorganized insecure attachment styles. And this was according to research that was done in 2004. In situations where there is disorganized insecure attachment, parents most often show behavior that is atypical. This is where a parent exhibits really abusive behavior. So they reject, they ridicule their child, or they even frighten their child. And when parents display these behaviors, it's often because they have their own past that includes unresolved trauma. This is where the whole concept of even generational trauma comes into play. What happened in the generation before you, unless it is corrected, it can sometimes be really easy to bring it over into the here and now. And sometimes it's not even on purpose. It kind of goes back to that sense of, well, this is my familiar. This is how I was raised. So I'll raise my child the same way. My parents always made fun of me. It's It wasn't a big deal. I learned to deal with it. I'm going to just do that to my kid, you know, or it just comes out like that. So when a child approaches a parent, they can sometimes feel a sense of fear and even the increased anxiety instead of that solid sense of care and protection. And This is where the first three attachment styles that I shared with you are sometimes referred to as the more organized attachment styles, and it's because the child ultimately learns how they have to behave and then organizes their life strategy accordingly. You know, they learn, okay, I've got to be hyper-independent, self-reliant, or shut my feelings down for protection, or my parents are super secure and super supportive, so I can go to them in my time of need. But this fourth attachment style is often considered disorganized because the child's strategy then becomes disorganized. And so is their resulting behavior. It's almost like you never know what to expect. Again, I think about family units where there was a pattern of abuse, cycle of abuse that happened, and You always had that walking on eggshells type feeling. You never knew how mom or dad was going to behave. And so as a result, you you just kind of always didn't know where you stood. You, You didn't really know how to act. So eventually in this disorganized insecure attachment style, the child can start to develop behaviors that help them feel somewhat safe. And these can be maladaptive behaviors um, or in their own way, they tr- they, they, they're they adaptive to the child because they kind of have to be. But some of examples could include becoming really aggressive toward the parent, refusing care from the parent, and again, simply becoming super self-reliant. So in... Somewhat of a nutshell, these are the four attachment styles. I am also going to link this particular article from Healthline to the show notes just so that you're able to read through it on your own and just kind of process um, and see you know, where, where you may fall and hopefully it can give you some insight into 
how you are. But let me get into one very interesting study that I promised you I was going to share about that really backs up how important that infant-parent-caregiver relationship is. One of the most famous research studies was done actually way back in the 1950s by a gentleman named Harry Harlow, and it was called the Wire Mother Experiment. And so this was Harlow's probably most famous experiment that really involved giving young rhesus monkeys a choice between two different mothers. And with many, you know, um, scientific studies, oftentimes they do involve animals. I will go ahead and preface, no animals were harmed during this study, especially for all my animal lovers out there. But in this particular experiment, the each monkey was given a choice between two different moms, so to speak. One of the mothers was made of soft terry cloth, but provided no food. The other mom was made of wire, but provided nourishment from an attached baby bottle. So Harlow removed these tiny young monkeys from their natural mothers a few hours after birth and left them to be essentially raised by these mother surrogates. The experiment ended up demonstrating that the baby monkeys spent significantly more time with their cloth mother than with the wire mother. Now, I know this sounds a little bit out there, but bear with me because what it really showed was that the infant moms uh, the infant monkeys went to the wire mother, so the the mother that was made out of wire but was able to feed the monkey only for food, but preferred to spend time with the soft, comforting cloth mother when they were not eating. So Harlow essentially concluded that affection was the primary force behind the need for closeness, which really goes into show that even if a parent provided food on the table or a roof over their child's head, that ultimately kids needed a little bit more. They needed the softness. They needed that consistent level of security and support. And so I could not help but share that with you because I think that it's so just telltale of the rest of the research that Ainsworth and Bowlesby have done to show how all kids develop different attachment styles and it can happen just as early as, as being an infant, really. The second experiment that I want to share with you, and this one involves children, so this is also very interesting, but this occurred in the 1970s when psychologist Mary Ainsworth wanted to expand upon Bowlby's work in what is now referred to as her famous strange situation study. This particular study that she did involved observing children who were between the ages of 12 to 18 months old, and she wanted to see how they responded to certain situations where the child was left briefly alone and then reunited back with their mother. So she had a very specific 
situation assessment that followed a basic sequence. And so that's always something that stands out to me in research studies, in experiments, is that oftentimes there has to be kind of a control. So something that is very um, concrete, it happens to the same group of people every time, because that's how we're able to see what the results are, you know, how much something or somebody deviates from that initial kind of concrete sequence that's put in place. So Ainsworth's strange situation sequence essentially was the first step, the parent and child were put alone into a room. The second step was the child explores the room, but with parental supervision. So, you know, the, the child, Toddler is kind of toddling around 12 to 18 months. So exploring the room with, you know, their knowing that their parent is present. Then the third chain in this sequence included a complete stranger entering the room, talking to the parent, and then approaching the child. So at this point in the experiment, while the stranger is talking to the child, the parent quietly leaves the room. And the parent, at, after a period of time, the parent ends up returning and comforting the child. So believe it or not, this is where Ainsworth was able to draw upon these experiences to come up with her three major styles of attachment. Which it's really kind of interesting because if you do a quick Google search, you will actually find some of the original videos of this particular experiment. And it's just kind of interesting to, to watch. But that's the psychology nerd that's within me. So how was she able to do this? Basically, she measured and observed how children behaved when they realized that their parent was out of the room or, you know, when their the other individual was present with them and how they interacted with the individual who was considered a stranger. She did find that there were kind of three domains, secure, resistant, and avoidant reactions. And the secure reaction was, especially when separation anxiety was being exhibited, was that obviously the child was very upset when their parent left. And the resistant reaction was intense distress when the mother leaves. And then the avoidant kind of attachment style or reaction was that the child actually had no sign of distress when their parent left. Now, this goes on so on and so forth over the course of all these different domains, which I will not get into today because it would probably take quite a bit. But ultimately, this is where she was really able to draw what we now know today as the different attachment styles, as I've already shared, secure attachment, insecure avoidant, insecure, ambivalent, and even resistant in some cases. So she really was able to pull from her data and observations those three main attachment styles. Thought it would be interesting just to kind of throw in a little bit more of the history and some of the research behind these different attachment styles just for your own knowledge. So the question that you may be asking is, 
can an attachment style be changed? And the short of it, believe it or not, Bowlesby, Bowlby really believed that when it comes to attachment styles, how you develop in your early years can remain relatively unchanged for the rest of your life. But the good news here, this was, you know, years ago, but a 2018 study demonstrated that through therapy, through cognitive behavioral therapy, to be more specific, can lead to significant changes. And this comes after really studying neuroscience and knowing that different components of the brain and just the very way that our brains can work can change. And they can be, in many ways, rehabilitated, not to mention learning kind of social skills, learning how to set healthy boundaries, learning to understand what you need from your relationships, learning how to be able to express your needs, especially if you have an attachment style that lends its hand to really turning inward or being hyper-independent then just know that, of course, through individual counseling, through even true cognitive behavioral therapy, it has been shown that there can be some significant changes. The last thing that I'll share is to really briefly touch on just as adults, because I know I touched on this earlier, but how these attachment styles can really play out. Because if you're listening, I have no doubt that you're an adult tuning in. That if you had secure attachment characteristics while growing up, then more than likely you are going to, as an adult, have trusting and lasting relationships, tend to have that intact sense of self-esteem, share feelings with your partners and your friends, and even seek out social support. If you had the ambivalent attachment characteristics, then as an adult, you may feel reluctant to become close to others, worry that your partner doesn't love you or care for you, and become very distraught when relationships end. If you had avoidant or you identify as having rather avoidant attachment characteristics, as an adult, you may have problems with intimacy or that emotional intimacy. You may invest really little emotion in social or romantic relationships or be unwilling or just unable to share thoughts or feelings with others. Last but not least, if the disorganized attachment style really resonated with you, it has been shown that even by the age of six, you may have had to take on a parental role and some you may have had to take on the role as being a caregiver to your parent, which as an adult, this can oftentimes play out in the form of being hyper self-reliant in the here and now. As you can see, much of our attachment styles are absolutely learned from our family of origin and growing up. However, the one final interesting piece that I will share is that while these attachment styles are largely learned from our family of origin, before, you know, kind of putting it all on parents, because I know there are many parents who do the best that they can 
But I also know there are parents who have been abusive and have really been hurtful to their children. But it's also important to note that many attachment styles formed during early childhood are not always necessarily identical to those that are demonstrated in adult romantic relationships. We all know that a great deal of time, many years have elapsed between the time that you were a tiny baby to the time that you are now as an adult. And so as I had kind of touched on in the very beginning of this episode, there can be a range of experiences that occur over the life cycle that that continue to play a large role in adult attachment styles. I, I think even about, you know, the time where you're an adolescent or a pre-adolescent, you know, 11 years old or so, if you, you know, underwent extensive bullying, things of that nature, this can really shape your ability to trust other people. And so it's just important to know while attachment style can ultimately really be born in infancy even. And that's what Harlow's experiment really showed. And I know monkeys are not necessarily infants, but kind of that is what he was using at that time. Not to mention it is difficult to, um, because of the limitations placed on using humans in some of these experiments, it would be difficult to do an experiment on an infant because they don't have that agency to be able to consent to being a part of the experiment. But we were able to get a little bit or a big bit of information from his experiment on the importance of a parental figure providing warmth and comfort versus just being a cold or callous figure, so to speak. So I hope that you found this episode interesting today. I hope that it's given you some insight into potentially what your attachment style is, how it came to be, what you feel your childhood was like, and how that may have contributed to who you are in the here and now. I have linked, again, the relationship questionnaire, which really is a a useful tool to kind of self-assess and evaluate yourself on where you may fall. That is going to be in the show notes. And as always, I just really look forward to being back next week for another episode. And just know that if you find the desire within to reach out for therapy, to even go deeper in terms of understanding what your attachment style is. My favorite resources are www.psychologytoday.com. There is goodtherapy.org, Open Path Collective, contacting your health insurance company to see who is in network. And just know, be empowered to know that there's always time to learn more about yourself, to make healthy changes, to develop healthier relationships. I am a firm believer that no matter what has necessarily occurred in your life, you deserve to feel empowered to be healthy, to make those healthy decisions, and to surround yourself with people who are going to be healthy uplifting, but also challenge you to be a better person, all of the above. So take great care of yourself. Thank you so much for tuning in and I'll see you next time. Be well.
Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Living Freely Podcast today. As always, the information in this episode is not intended to diagnose or treat. It is highly recommended to find a provider in your area or by going to www.psychologytoday.com to find a therapist in your area. If you have enjoyed this episode, please don't hesitate to rate and review our podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts, so that we are able to be seen by more people wanting to get information on mental health and wellness. Thanks so much again for tuning in. We'll look forward to seeing you next week for an all new episode. Be well.